millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Okay, Stephen, I'm going to put something to you, which is, I I guess, a problem when you work on a politics and current affairs magazine, but it is this. Is it just me? I'm getting a bit Clarkson. Is it just me? Or is politics at the moment really unbearable, or British politics, really unbearably painful? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's partly because the two, the two main parties are having, I would use the word psychodrama, but I think that imply, implies a level of drama that is not really present. Uh, effectively, the action is within the two main parties, and and it's not really against the two. So it's not exactly the stuff that political intrigue is made of. On the one hand, you have the Conservatives' um, kind of row that isn't over the European referendum. You have Cameron, who is well known, you know, has a kind of credibility among the public at large, and then you have a group of outers who either people haven't heard of or they've heard of them and they do not like them <laughs> yeah, at and they all. wish they hadn't heard of them, yeah. yeah. No, I think, actually, to be fair, I do think the outers have a reasonable complaint, which is that, I know this always happens, that the, but Cameron is, the establishment side is, you know, is stacking the deck. So he gets to go to this European summit in two weeks' time, you know, haggle over his draft communique, which is already intensely boring and a, and a work of many, many subclauses, come back with some old bobbins, and then, then only then have the cabinet meeting, and then it's kind of game on. But in the t- in the you know in the sort of intervening two weeks, he has been able to use the full force of the office of prime minister, and you know looking sort of you know leaderly in navy suits, standing next to things to make his case. And I can see why, if you're Chris Grayling, that 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 would irritate you. Although the flip side of this, as one minister put it to me this week, is they said, "But the outers have been boring on about this." Uh, for as long as, uh, as they said, as long as they've been in politics, as someone who joined the Conservative Party in 1990. I think it is a good uh, yeah. lesson of, like, be careful what you wish for, because this was sort of supposed to be the moment that, you know, the great silent majority awoke and roared, and it sort of doesn't, it feels like the silent majority is still quite silent, and, and if anything, slightly bored. But I submit that the EU referendum debate is slightly less arid than Trident. It would be hard to be more arid. I mean, my problem with Trident is this, is that I kind of... I think I'm probably instinctively not pro Trident. Like I just, I just feel like we wouldn't use it, and it's all this like slightly bizarre pretense that uh, that that we would. I, I and I feel even more strongly about that actually because I went to 
when I was in Japan two years ago, I went to the Hiroshima Museum, and they have there the letters that school children from the town, like from the schools in Hiroshima, write slightly passive aggressive, but fair enough letters to everybody who conducts any kind of nuclear test. So it's like, dear Mister, I know, suppose the extra arms they've all grown. Are <laughs> well, no, but I mean, it's it, it is really horrifying. So you you walk around this sort of diorama that's full of school children with their sort of skin dripping off their arms and bits of fingernail and stuff like that that they're the only bit of these children that they ever found and then at the end you see all these children writing to people now and you just think i i just don't what even like even basically i think basically kim jong-il is the only world leader i think who was currently actually crazy and cruel enough to to drop one of these things so what are we what is all of this about really but i take the other i do take the other point that if it is going to be a virility symbol then you've just got to have one which is a kind of cold political calculation i realize i find it boring for quite a different reason which is that it feels like it has brought out literally the worst in almost every single labor politician so so corbyn is conducting a review into into the whether or not labor should support the deterrent but we all know Jeremy Corbyn opposes the deterrent. There is no, there is literally nothing this report could say that would lead to him turning around and going, oh, Struth, fine, I'll, I'll back down. On the other mm. hand, the idea that there were any people who voted for Corbyn in this leadership election they've just had who didn't know he was against uh, the deterrent is for the birds. And watching these people who have spent years arguing against Well, I think there are probably people who conference. don't know that he was against it, because, but not anybody that, that would then may go that they would regret yeah. voting for him, right? Uh, yeah, and then this bizarre idea that some people on the right of the party... I mean, there are people who who a year ago were briefing to me when a Labour Party conference would vote for something, oh, it's just conference, we'll ignore it, and now going, oh, but conference has voted to to retain a nuclear deterrent. And ultimately, party party activists are not great ways to set policy. I mean, look at the Lib Dems threshold raise, voted through on massive votes, originally an idea by the grassroots uh, intended to to help the poorest is a massive bung for... You mean the income tax? Yeah, the income tax threshold, threshold raise. You know, like the, the, yes, which helps people on higher yeah. rates of tax more. Yeah, it, it's not it is not a good way to get informed policymaking which actually lives for the actual values of, of real activists. And the people complaining about this know this. They just want to stuff Jeremy over something. And also this idea of, oh, they'll stand on separate Trident manifestos. Your policy on deterrent is de facto the policy of your Prime Minister-designate, which is Jeremy He's Corbyn. He's got the button. Yeah, yeah he, I mean, right. Labour is a, it became a unilateralist party on the 12th of September and it will remain one until Jeremy Corbyn retires or dies. But isn't the um, Trident thing a, a, a kind of a microcosm of the bigger problem of the Labour right, which is that their whole stance at the moment seems to be, well, obviously we'd love to do X thing. In an ideal world, we'd love to do X thing, but the voters won't wear it, rather than ever actually... So no one says, actually, I do believe we have to have a, tr a strong deterrent. You know, I do believe we just we have to have a nuclear deterrent. Instead, you can sense the uneasy feeling is, of course, I would love to... I would Wouldn't it be great if there were no more nuclear weapons in the world, but we can't get it past the voters? And that seems to me to be their argument on lots of things as well. Know, so Jamie Reid, John Woodcock... Um... Uh, yeah, I mean, there are some weird pro-Trident people. I mean, but it comes across yeah, like, often yeah, as, a, like, as a pragmatic yeah. thing, right? Rather than a principle. Rather than we've got two contested sets of principles, we've got one set of principles and one set of people who are willing to compromise those principles. Oh yeah, for I think power. that is partly because most of the current generation of Labour MPs came into politics as quite big fans of Neil Kinnock, and they have all gone on similar political journeys to the ones he would. So for yeah, they, they sort of think it's a bit of a national penis, but you can't go into an election voting to chop it off and uh, and expect to get elected. And the interesting thing is, if you look at the polling, the gender gap on Trident is is quite amusing. There are, like, many, many, many more men who are 
pro having this big submarine with which you can irradiate an entire city. This is the um, thing I find really interesting. I would really love to see... I mean, some of the most interesting research is about what, how much people actually understand. Like, if you look at the underneath the headline figures, I think it was... Was it Philip Cowley's book, The uh, Sex, Lies and Ballots uh, yeah. book, where they asked people for their range on... You know, for their opinions on, a, on policies that did not, in fact, exist. So mm. they said, you know, what do you think of such and such an act? And 15% of people, you know... Or, like, what do you think of such and such a minister? And a certain number of people, more men than women would go, oh, I think it's te- I'm terrible. That's terrible. can't do that guy. Hated it. Always hated him. And it was someone that was completely made up. Yeah. And I feel like a bit like that about Trident. Actually, do you say to people, you know, are you in favour of a nuclear terror? Actually, if you ask people to any level of detail about how many submarines have we got, you know, what... What actually, how much, you know, how many megatons of whatever would they deliver? How much, you know, bigger are they than the Hiroshima bomb? You know, all that kind of stuff. I just feel like, actually, I don't know. I don't know if anybody... Are there three Trident submarines? Four. You've got to have four so you can have uh, one continuously at sea. And the submarines are called something else. This is the thing, isn't it? Isn't it a Big Ben thing where, like, actually the Trident is the name oh, of the... Oh, because the submarine's just a submarine. Well, it's yeah. not... Yeah, but, like, you know, like, the, the submarine is in some... The weird thing is the submarine is the most important thing in terms of some of the internal labour politics. And the, the reason why the unions are so dead set against it is both GMB and Unite represent members who make the Trident. So, weirdly, this um this idea that, oh, we'll just have it, we won't have a missile in there. In terms of squaring the internal labour politics, that works perfectly because it wins over... The MPs who think it's a virility symbol but think you can't get rid of it, and the trade unionists who are worried about jobs. And it leaves out the people who think we actually need to have a credible deterrent, but they are not a majority of people within the yeah. Labour Party in that debate. Um, so this is my theory about what Emily Thornbury should do, right? She should say the biggest threat that we face, the terrifying threat that we face, is Russian and Chinese cyber attackers. So I am building, like, if Labour got into power, we would build the spire and we would fill it with, you know, boffins or whatever in lab coats who would be doing that thing in Mission Impossible where you hit all the keys really fast. Um, and I just feel like you could you could give us another virility symbol. It, it comes down to, and it's why leaders matter, people don't intuitively don't believe there are any circumstances in which Jeremy Corbyn would ever push the button, uh, which means and it doesn't really matter what Labour's formal policy is, and it's why I think this the is pro nuclear MPs should just kind of pipe down. Dan um, Jarvis could be anti-Trident. Theory, yeah, I right? mean, if you have somebody who is a former commander in Afghanistan, no one is going to be able to say, you know, you'd quail at the sight of the enemy. Yeah, exactly. Although, let's but as we wrap up, I think we probably should mention the fact that Labour are, don't feel like they're battering down the door of the six o'clock news at the moment do they no i mean the slightly strange thing is is that large chunks of both the leader's office and the shadow cabinet have effectively gone quiet if 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 labor party press releases or media events or indeed attempts to get on the news were the only guide you'd be forgiven for thinking that the shadow cabinet had been reduced to john mcdonald seema malhotra the health secretary Heidi alexander diane abbott and john ashworth are really the only ones and chris bryan actually to be fair the only ones who are yeah and there is kind of considerable lethargy there so maybe you think that's because of the eagle problem so you know both maria eagle and angela eagle did you know in the the early days did a fair bit of kind of marshall appearance and stuff like that but they did always get faced with that and do you think that you know jeremy corbyn will be our next prime minister and they always just sort of went angela eagle had several times where she went he is a man, a man who is running for prime minister. And they went, yeah, but do you think he should be? And do you think that that's a problem is a lot of them feel that they don't feel prepared for the gotcha, not gotcha question, you know what I mean? The questions that they can't really honestly answer. Yeah, and I think that is something that some people in the shadow cabinet probably do need to think 
hard about in you know i mean one mp said this morning so well i didn't stay at serve because i think he's going to be there till 2020 i don't think we can win with him and uh the easy the, the most useful thing i can do is just say nothing uh and they yeah and they said and, and people who are in the shadow cabinet looking like ho- isis hostages should do the same uh yeah they should if, if, if they can't yeah and i think that that is one of the reasons why emily thornbury was a good signing for them i know you only use signing in football but you know what i mean because she someone who will go on tv and say with conviction yes i think this is right and she'll get pilloried by some of the press and the opponents but they will be better off for kind of going forward with a bit more yeah um, i think i think some of the reaction to her talking about trident she was at the plp meeting and um and you know it's kind of come up again i, I think it's slightly unfair there is a sort of I think there should be more acknowledgement that she is making a case. She is, you know, she is, she has taken on a job and she has to say this. And, and actually she does believe it as well. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, do you know what I mean? There's just something about the reaction to it that I think is just not exactly kind of bullying, but almost kind of just doesn't acknowledge that the role of Corbyn's defence secretary is to put forward Corbyn's defence policy. Yeah. And I think there's this, um, I don't even think it's an unwillingness. I think it's actually, there's this, lack of understanding that you've got to judge politicians by their own terms and although Ed Miliband moved slightly to the left of where Labour was under Blair and Brown he was still sort of playing that kind of game about oh we're going to do this so they do that we're going to position ourselves in this way or the other the Corbyn electoral strategy such as it is is built on this idea that you can cobble together green voters non-voters and Labour's core and that will allow you to get a, a deal with the SNP and also, crucially, to hold control of the party for long enough that, uh, because obviously there are some people who have this idea that Labour only really wins in exceptional circumstances, mostly at the fag end of long Tory governments, as in 64, 1997, mm. and indeed 1945. And so you just have to make sure that it's your faction which is there, on when the, the ship, music stops. When yeah. the music stops. And on those things, all of those, you know, everything they're doing is actually going very well. But because basically a lot of people, including people who are notionally supportive of Jeremy, basically want Jeremy to operate as if he were Yvette Cooper. And so they have the kind of weird... Yeah, and, and this idea that, oh, it was crazy what Emily Thornbury was saying. Well, it's only crazy if you start from the position and getting rid of the deterrent is crazy. Labour members don't. Their chosen candidate doesn't. And from that perspective, Emily Thornbury is a very good choice. Well, um, if we're not too bored to death, we'll be back next week with more. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman, Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So I interviewed... Graham Brady this week, the chairman of the Tory backbench 1922 committee, probably one of the most influential backbenchers in the in in the Commons. He told me likely to have um, 100 Tory MPs vote against the EU. That when we vote against the EU, he's he's, he's confident of victory. Uh, David Cameron should not resign because um, although most MPs expect he would have to, um, because Brady believes the period of stability would be important but nevertheless looking forward to the next conservative leadership election um he said that he thinks it's essential and unlikely that one of the two candidates who go forward to the membership after the um sort of pre-election among mps 
would be an opponent of the EU. And what does that sort of mean for the likely field? So I think it means that if you look at the cabinet ministers likely to come out for, for withdrawal, um, Ian Duncan-Smith, Chris Grayling, Theresa Villiers, John Whittingdale, um, Pretty Patel, possibly Michael Gove. Of those, Pretty Patel is actually seen as, as the one most likely to stand um, because the others either don't want to be leader, um, lack the qualities required to be leader, um, have been leader in Ian Duncan-Smith's case. Um, whereas Pretty Patel um, is seen as someone young, who's articulate, um, who will um, obviously achieve much higher prominence during the campaign when they're looking for anti-EU voices in the media. And it also means that uh, it's, it's a reminder of just how Eurosceptic the Tory grassroots are, which I think is can't be emphasised enough. Uh, Conservative Home have their regular next leader poll today and uh, Liam Fox is top for the, for the first time. Um, and that's actually no surprise. He's one of the sort of few prominent MPs who's, uh, who came out early against um, EU membership. And um, it's also no surprise that George Osborne's obviously pro-EU stance has done him no favours as his uh, fortunes plummet, having initially risen after the uh, general election when he was rather prematurely uh, identified as the, uh, as the next uh, leader in waiting. Um, although, of course, in, in, in the Conservative case, that, that has proven a curse. I think the last time that uh, the next Conservative leader actually became leader was, was Eden in 1955. Yeah. Which didn't exactly end well for Anthony Eden. Um, there will likely be several candidates from the right of the party. It's quite a crowded space, isn't it? Yes, it is. There's Liam Fox is certainly um, a potential one. Um, Pretty Patel, as I as I as I've mentioned, and then you, of course you'll have um, possibly Theresa May, you'll have um, Boris in the mix, and there's also debate among MPs about whether the ballot should be expanded from two to to three, possibly four. Uh, Nikki Morgan has said that there should be a, a female candidate in the race, ideally herself. Mm. Um, and, and Graham Brady pointed out to me that the rules as they stand only stipulate that MPs give members a choice there's no reason that has to be two MPs it, 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 it's not a it's not a condition but he said he'd see no reason why MPs would want to reduce their influence in 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 the process um, and of course on the on the Labour side they can only fantasize about the possibility of a of a conservative Corbyn which which would be someone like Peter Bone or Bill Cash running on a virulently anti-EU platform and, and sweeping to victory among among the grassroots. But Conservatives, of course, are, are mindful of the need, I think, to avoid electing a leader who um, has the support of less than 10% of the MPs. So I expect um, they may change it so three candidates can go forward, but um, I think MPs will want to retain as much control over the system as they can. Right. Thanks very much. And back, we'll see you again next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
back and we're going to talk about romance because it's Valentine's Day. Hey, this actually does tie in. I've just realised that was also the peg for your article. <laughs> topical. <laughs> so it is hashtag topical. Um, we're joined by Anna Leskovitz, like a guest from the Seriously podcast. Yeah. Come over. Um, tell us about what's wrong with romance, you man-hating feminazi. Uh, yeah, romance just sucks. Uh, no, there was a study done recently um, by Professor Julia Lippmann, who's a professor of communication studies at the University of Michigan. And um, basically the study was called I Did It Because I Never Stopped Loving You. And it looked at if you took clips from certain movies and showed them to women. And then after you'd shown them those clips, asked them to sort of rate whether you thought certain behaviours were unacceptable or not. If you watched rom-coms where uh, the male lead sort of pursues the, the female lead aggressively, afterwards you would rate stalking behaviours as much more acceptable than otherwise. But this all—I mean, this goes back as far as Romeo and Juliet, right? And most in real life, if you met a guy at a party and then you were back at your house later and you went to look out <laughs> the window and he was there in the bushes <laughs> staring at you, you probably wouldn't kind of swoon. You'd probably get, you know, get get on the phone to the police. Yeah, it's not ideal. And obviously it's, it is quite entrenched in our culture. And I think some films actually do a fairly good job of sort of sending this up even as they participate in it. So one of the clips that they showed in this study was something about Mary which, as a film, while you're watching it, it's like pretty clear that this behaviour is creepy, right? I'm not the yeah. only one who watched that and thought, like, this is a bit of a joke because everything that Ben Stiller's character is doing here is pretty. Yeah, he's the he's Or the is butter. it Adam Sandler? No, no, it's Ben Stiller. It's ben Stiller. Yeah. No, I would never watch an Adam Sandler. I have three <laughs> rules of life. One, never watch a, an Adam Sandler film. Okay. <laughs> How did you make that rule without having other, seen one? <laughs> and also, what are the other two rules? <laughs> You don't have another two rules. You only have one rule. I, I may have other two rules, but I will Save reveal them. those okay, over that's the course a of the keep podcast. Listening. Um, I think that's exactly true because when you um, there was a lot of discussion about this around the time of the Twilight books, and then and then when the movies came out as well, because that yeah. whole setup is weird. Yes, yeah, I mean so not weird. least because he's like several centuries older than her. So that's it's just kind of, the, of pervy in itself. Yeah, yeah. But then all the weird thing about Jacob falling in love with Renesmee because he imprints on her, and I think that's really. Interesting. So I don't know if you're familiar with Twilight. I am. Okay. So I sold a lot of books in my. For anyone life. who isn't, basically, um, Bella and Edward have a child that kind of Edward has to perform a cesarean with his teeth because um, it's yeah it's because he's a vampire. That he's was a vampire. Yes, that was, that was <laughs> a really important bit of context there, and, and turn her into a vampire. But then the baby that which is named after their grandparents, so it's called Renesmee. Uh, Jacob previously had quite fancied Bella, but then as soon as he sees the baby as a baby. He realizes that actually the baby his this is, is one the true baby love. for me, and there is never any kind of question about that. Renesmee might be like, "Hey, older guy who fancied me as a baby, maybe this isn't going to work out between us. Maybe I actually want to go on a gap here and find myself." Um, and I think that's uh, it, funny enough. It reminds me there's a whole this kind of stuff was even being brought up in in Star Trek: The Next Generation. I'm sorry, just there's a brilliant episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation where they bring along somebody like um a woman who is a, a changeling and basically she adapts to being whatever the ideal woman for who for whoever that she's talking to is so she obviously she's you know, she's sort of brusquely intellectual and a bit kind of cool and french when she's talking to picard you know with Riker, she'd sort of go off and shoot beavers in the, <laughs> on the holodeck or whatever but she's been given as a gift to this kind of guy that, the, that her planet is trying to make an alliance with and it's kind of but unfortunately she ends up imprinting on picard which you would do because you know he's a 
captain. And uh, but, but but they can't change anything, so she just has to go off and marry this other guy. And it was quite a good kind of thing about the idea that actually people don't get what what they want, and you, there isn't there isn't one person out there for you. Mm. Most people, that's not really how it works. Can we also pause to mark? I think the only point in podcast history in which I have been cooler than you on air. <laughs> yeah, Helen, you've gone full nerd. I think actually that's important though because some of these programs that you're talking about are aimed at men, whereas most rom-coms are kind of aimed at women. So this stuff is even weirder to me. Like there's a whole subgenre that I like to call men using time travel in order to groom preteens where the men... Richard Curtis issue. Yeah, like about time, the time traveler's wife, like all the these films. The time wife is just just stone cold. I mean, it's an appalling book anyway, but it's... <laughs> full creepy. Oh, I mean, that guy belongs in prison. I'm glad he, spoiler alert, gets his leg crush. No, <laughs> <laughs> like... it's so intense. You're like, not wrong at all. When he like decides that he's in love with this woman, in order to get her to fall in love with him, he goes back in time, sees her as a 12-year-old, and sort of like turns up and is like, one day we'll be together. That's not something you can do. That's not okay. But this is another reason, one million, why I love Jessica Jones. And Emily Nussbaum wrote a great piece in The New Yorker in which she pointed out that, so the premise of Jessica Jones is Jessica Jones is, when you first meet her, she has obviously survived some incredibly traumatic event. It turns out she has escaped from a supervillain called Kilgrave, who his superpower is that he can't, he just, he emits a pheromone that makes people just instantly obey him. And Mm -hmm. David Tennant plays this as like a slightly kind of wounded guy. Like, Like, it's such a curse. I never, you know, people don't, themselves around me but he's but with excellent creepiness no but it, with he? amazing creep but with that slight edge of manicness that you get mm. in his doctor as well which is really brilliant but that he doesn't there's a scene where he says to her like where she says to him you know you raped me and he goes i didn't rape you, you think being taken to five star hotels is rape and she kind of just looks at him and there is this sort of sense that he just doesn't realize that doesn't get it that that she is a person with her own wants and needs. And that's that's exactly, you know, Nussbaum really underlines that that is the dynamic that you just get in so many of these rom-coms. It's like, but I really want to be with her. So all I've got to do is just persuade her that she wants me. Or I know that she wants me and she won't admit it for all these reasons that I've come up with. Yeah. Which is just a real way to completely erase someone's agency and do it in a way that's also patronising. Well, yeah, it's like that, like, you know, we've seen it in so many films, insert name here, I'm going to marry that girl. Yeah, like like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. If you're behaving like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, it's not romantic. You're a twerp. Wow, I can't believe you're a Gaston-phobe. <laughs> pretty big bombshell to drop at this point. She's the one. The lucky girl I'm going to marry. That whole thing yeah. is just, yeah. Or I, if I persist long enough, she'll realise just how much I love her and therefore she must return it. Yeah, and I do think it's... Um... Yeah, without wishing to remove the agency of people who, you know, go out and choose to behave in a bad way towards women. It, it is one of those weird things. Whenever you rewatch sort of a thing, you're like, oh, I like this as a teen. It's on Netflix. Mm. Um, why not watch it now? And you just you suddenly go, wow, so many of the bad romantic decisions people I know made in, in the mid-noughties suddenly make an awful kind of sense. Because it's just like, if you bother someone, eventually... They'll just be like, oh, I now see that you're wonderful. Even those grand romantic lines in like Breakfast at Tiffany's, that bit where she's like, people don't belong to people. And he's like, no, they do. And you belong to me. And then they like kiss in the rain. And you're like, oh, wow. Is that how this is going to work? Really? But I can understand it in the case of Twilight because it's got those sort of implicit religious overtones about sort of surrendering yourself to something higher and, you know, kind of keeping yourself pure and, and, and the institution of marriage as being this kind of thing that you sublimate yourself into. But it seems a quite an odd thing for 
rom-coms that are sort of about kind of young sexually adventurous I suppose mm. rom-coms are deeply conventional aren't they because Massively. there is because it is about the idea that you monogamy you know with somebody is the kind of that's your final destination and you've got to kind of you know pass through everything else on your way to the end of it and a lot of rom-coms rely on this idea that you can be in deep, true love with someone without realising it. And that's the like turn of the rom-com is when you like realise that actually this person was meant for you all along. And I think that kind of plays into this narrative that the, a man could convince you that actually you just don't know that you're in love with him. You, yeah. Do you ever see it the other way around? Can you think of any films where it's a woman who like, stalks a, a bloke? Well, there are films like that, but I feel like they're usually considered much darker and like the woman is considered more crazy. Than persistent. Uh, there's that film um, with uh, the actress from Amelie called He Loves Me, He Loves Me Not, which is like the first half acute rom com. And of course, Misery. Misery? Misery, the Stephen King story with um, the, where the writer gets kidnapped and then she hobbles him so that he can't oh, right. escape. <laughs> yeah, so these things do exist, but like I think more more often than not, a very persistent, aggressive female lover is yeah, or crazy, fatal attraction, fa- fatal yeah. attraction territory uh, than a sort of, like, romantic hero of any kind. But But just to finish this off, I just wanted to give one plug for something which is, I think, an example of someone doing this well, which has been written about on the New Statesman this week. Helen Wormsey-Johnson wrote about the Archers and the fact that Rob Archer has been pursuing a very, very slow-moving campaign of coercive control over Helen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and it's been done, it's been played out in in radio serial format, so you've only seen it kind of creeping up. And it was only a couple of weeks ago that people suddenly started going, "Uh, this guy's actually, this is not... You know, this is not normal. Anyway, she wrote about this for us and uh, someone posted an appeal to, for refuge and it's now raised over £20,000. That's amazing. Wow. So I think that, I thought, given that we spend a lot of time, be, like, this has been a sad podcast because mm. Stephen and I are bored by politics. But these things do happen but and it's great happy to see thing. people talking about them in pop culture. And I think that's, I think it's important that, that those discussions don't just happen among kind of cultural critics. They happen mm-hmm. in the culture themselves, that people begin to make art that is in dialogue with, with previous art. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure that The Archers is necessarily in dialogue with Richard Curtis <laughs> movies, but slightly different demographic maybe, but yeah. That's why um, the sadly cancelled party to My So-Called Life is so good, because it, I think properly, it is a very accurate reflection of teenage relationships, but... Yeah, or right, Buffy. You yeah. know, the relationship between Buffy and Spike is a really dysfunctional relationship, uh, uh, but it's played out with, with both of them as people who are making decisions, right? Mm-hmm. It's not entirely seen from one point of view. Oh, no, I think Buffy went downhill when, when Buffy and Spike got together. But we can save that schism <laughs> for our forthcoming Buffy the Vampire Slayer special. <gasps> Please special tell me that's episode. a real thing, Anna. I... I don't know much about Buffy. I, so I, my listeners don't want to know about my Buffy knowledge. Um, could we have a Star Trek special? No. Oh, come on, come on. <laughs> no, that's full nerd. Come on, I was re-watching some Deep Space Nine and I've got a lot of... Th- I didn't realise there was a whole spit of Deep Space Nine set on Earth when after the changelings have come through the wormhole. No, you're looking at me like that. No. Right. We're going to oh, cut from the Buffy. Okay. Let's just pretend that none of... From the Buffy of, bit, right. I think, that, I think the, the Buffy happened. special should be a good point. I, I'm extremely cool. <laughs> And now it's time for You Ask Us. Yeah, a fairly uh, sort of morose question of this week. We are open to cheerful ones as well. What's uh, your favourite puppy? Yeah, what, we are we are we are there for all of these questions. Um, was why? Yeah, they, basically. <laughs> I thought you were just going to go. The question of the week was why, <laughs> why, why any of it? Why bother? Why is it uh, yeah. that? Um, we were one of the few people, few places to go. Well, if you look at the demographics of uh, the American primary electorate, 
it's very difficult uh, from the polls and from the Iowa result to see a path. Uh, why are for, we Bernie skeptics? For, for San- no, it's not why we. Why are we Bernie skeptics? It's why is it because they point out that every American election cycle goes on. Yeah, there was last time, you know, when when it was kind of obvious Romney had won, and then there was this somewhat- ludicrous bit during the Republican primaries where everybody knew that Romney was going to win, and we had to go through this months long charade where random people like Michelle, what's her name, and. Mike Huckabee all got to say various mad things. That that big guy who looked like a sofa, he got to not Rick Perry. Yeah, my favourite one is Rick Perry because someone I want to say Matt Tybee wrote a long piece in which he said, "You know, there are constants in Texan politics. One is Rick Perry getting into an election, being written off, and grinding his opponents into dust." I don't think Rick Perry won a single primary, but it, it is interesting because. Um, there are lots of um, fascinating questions about the Sanders surge. The one I'm really looking forward to is what would be quite nice to see is if they can take uh, this bit of the Democratic coalition, which has shown it does have an appetite for politics than is actually quite right wing in a European context, but is far to the left of anything we've mm. seen at a nationwide level in the States. And if they can get social democratic politicians elected at a statewide level or even at a congressional level i saw an astonishing poll which was women aged 18 to 34 are backing bernie sanders by like 84 percent to nine percent over hillary clinton i think that's one of the interesting things about looking at the sanders surge is looking at it as a generational gap rather than anything else particularly because it is odd to have a you know older voters are just overwhelmingly going with 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 clinton sanders's support we know is much younger is much whiter um and that's i think that's a really underexplored thing but i'm just my problem with it is is that i know that there's become a hunt for like aren't women who back hillary the real sexists you know that kind of thing where kind of people say like oh right you want all women shortlists aren't you the real sexist i kind of feel there's something like that going on as well where you're not even allowed to say i I know she's got problems but i really do think that the symbolism of having a female president is something really brilliant in the same way that i i think people didn't feel as ashamed at all of saying about obama i think there's a brilliant symbolism in america about having its first african-american president and i think the other thing you're saying about why is it everybody presenting it as a uh, as a draw? I mean, Nate Silver, I think, wrote about this, and when, and when he his figures clearly showed an Obama win, when you know five thirty eight model, and and it, but people were just saying it's so tight, it's so unbelievably tight, it's just incredibly tight, um, because it kind of news expand is like a gas, it expands to fill any space, and that's why you know it's kind of becomes like sports commentary. There just has to be a huge amount of it turning over all the time, constantly, in order to to have something to fill all of the available time that's yeah. allotted to it. And also, I think that there are, if you are the reporter on the campaign trail, it is not really acceptable to kind of go, I'll be honest with you, there's no point in me being out here. I might as well be sitting in the office. Well, I mean, that's thing is if, if, you know, if the new statesman had sent me out to... You'd be on the Bernie bus right now. To to New Hampshire, I wouldn't be on this podcast saying, to be honest, unless he wins by 30 points, you can probably safely not pay for my nice hotel in South Carolina. My other problem is, this sort of sour note of, not only of, of, of obvious sexism against Hillary, but also of, of resentment at anyone identifying that and a kind of 
which I think I, for me as a person is a, is a hangover from Corbyn summer, where if you said, if you made any kind of criticism about gender grounds, suddenly it was kind of like, you would just, people really didn't want to hear that from the left. I, so I know I'm oversensitive on that. But that has sort of slightly soured me on the fact that Bernie Sanders is a really interesting candidate. Like we, I went back and um, we did a New Statesman special about three years ago about, you know, the 20 most interesting voices on the left. And we had, you know, lots of positive things to say about Bernie Sanders. You know, he ran as an independent. He has talked a lot about campaign finance. You know, there's a big question mark last election about... Um, Obama whether or not he would take this sort of big money and in the end the the, 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 fight, the case that he made which I think was fair enough was we can't change the system unless we win occasionally like I can make the principal decision and lose or I can make the unprincipled decision and win and hopefully affect some change um, but I would feel a lot more excited about Bernie and also his Twitter feed's got kind of mean the Twitter feed is the one aspect of the campaign that I don't really understand because so a pitch I keep getting is what can Sanders, Corbyn learned from from Sanders. Sanders. But actually the reverse is true. Corbyn ran a a very disciplined campaign to get to his selectorate. Uh, African-Americans, who are the the voter group that Sanders badly needs, they they like Hillary. They like Bill. If you want to get those voters over, you've got to offer them something i don't get what the subtweets are really well i thought there was a really interesting thing in the um tanahishi coates wrote a piece about bernie's you know lack of interest in stuff like some of the reparation stuff and he was saying you kind of you can't give us the kind of no war but the class war stuff and i kind of wanted to say well that's how i feel about it from a gender perspective it's when he says something like you know planned parenthood is the establishment or that of course they say that's the establishment i think actually if you're even if you are making an explicitly class politics based appeal Lack of access to abortion disproportionately affects Hispanic women, affects undocumented immigrants, it affects poor women. You know, I just don't like the lack of, actually the lack of intersectionality, frankly, in that that approach. And um, I think that's one of the reasons, that's another reason that he's, he's getting, he's getting on my wick. But um, but yeah, that's a very simple answer to the that why is why is everyone else saying it's really close because it makes it sound more exciting. Yeah, you asked us, we answered. You might not like our answer, but we did answer. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Book, and our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.